Welcome to Here Come the Sequels. It's a full spoiler podcast where we take a look at popular film franchises one movie at a time. I'm Tyler. And I'm just glad to know that pugs and bulldogs will survive another 8,100 years. Guys, this movie was boring. I mean, I'm Alex. <laughs> and over here, it's me, Regis, the moi dib. <laughs> That's right, I, uh... I took a little time off, came back. I'm the Kwisad Sadarak. I'm a, there's a jihad raising across the galaxy in my name. <laughs> no, I'm just kidding. It, I'm not Regis, but my name is a killing word. It's Britain. <laughs> oh, my God. <laughs> this week, we, in case you haven't been able to tell, dear listener, uh, are talking about Dune. Not not Denis, D- Denis Villeneuve um, and, <laughs> Denis and his... Villeneuve. his fancy uh shiny cast but but the all the rust and bolts of the original <laughs> 1983 84 84 classic all those rusty scruffy boys <laughs> yeah yeah we're we're putting we're putting our bets on hey denny can can you can you make sure you get you get two movies out before <laughs> before they bomb and and nobody wants yeah. to go uh i like i like blade runner 2049 anyways <laughs> i think most people do yeah. Get us to that that get us past the threshold where we can call this a franchise. Right. <laughs> uh Happy 200 guys. It's it. Yeah. We're just a bunch of bicentennial men over here. Mhm. Wondering what it'd be like to have skin. <laughs> <laughs> I haven't seen the film. <laughs> um so uh, I know we're, we're we're doing a lot of jokes here because we're excited. We're doing our 200th episode. But I know we, we uh, as of our last recording, we, we got really carried away talking about Star Wars. And there's a couple of things that we didn't didn't get to touch on that I know we wanted to. So we're going to do a, a quick, I guess, tone shift. Uh, Alex, do you want to you want to take it away here? Uh, yeah, we've we've had a, a couple of, of folks that that have been mentioned countless times on the podcast that have have passed away. The first of which being Joel Schumacher. Um, mm-hmm. Yeah, I'm just really sad about that. He was what 86, something like that. Yeah, it was pretty oh, old man. So yeah, yeah, and I, you know, we obviously did a lot of jokes about him, and and I confess I'm not super familiar with this filmography outside of the stuff that we've done for the podcast. But I mean, I don't know. I think he was one of those guys like. We never really had anything against him. We just like, oh, this is kind of a funny, funny figure, you know. Right. And we get to talk about Batman or Robin or Phantom, but it's like, right, yeah, come on, like, we don't. I know it was like a fond. Yeah, I think, uh, I think we would definitely count him as a beloved character on this podcast. Um, mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, we would. We would go. If we were ever poking fun at him, it would it would just be in jest, and and you know, I, I'm. I am kind of a staunch defender of Batman Forever and a lot that that movie's trying to go for, even if it's not perfect. And, you know, I, I don't put much of Batman and Robin on, on him in terms of who to blame. Um, no. Even though no, he is, I, I want to point out, I, I really respect a filmmaker who's just like, no, I'm responsible for all of this. If you didn't like it, yes. you can blame me. And he has done mm-hmm. that many times with Batman and Robin. And, I don't know, I just really respect him. Like, any time I see him in an interview... Like, I don't know, he's just a really interesting person to listen to and hear their thoughts. Definitely. So. Yeah, yeah. and I always, um, 
I didn't realize he made the Lost Boys. Oh wow! Mm-hmm. I'm looking mm-hmm. at his uh, his IMDb yeah. He, no, no, no. Like the, the sad part is, like people know him basically for the films that we've done on the podcast, but he has like a varied filmography. Yeah, Lost Boys, like, San Almost Fire, The Original Flatliners, Falling Down. Wow. Yeah, he's um, done all sorts of movies that are not just like campy, over the top, neon infused. Yeah, uh, extravaganzas. <laughs> And even like Phantom of the Opera, I mean, I, it's it's not a perfect movie, but I do think like, I don't know. There was a lot of stuff in that movie that I did like, <laughs> right? You know, yeah. and uh, yeah, I don't know. It just it it, it felt it we would be remiss to not mention him and mention him lovingly. Like yes. he's we're all quite quite fond of him in our way. the The other one uh, that we lost was Ian Holm, the great yep. great actor. Uh, also, I believe in his eighties. Of course, uh, Ash is his name in Alien. Yes. Yep. Uh, and then, of course, Bilbo Baggins uh, and Britain Recommendation, uh, Big Night, which he is amazing in. Um, and he is also um, the weather scientist, the meteorologist in, in the Aviator. In, <laughs> oh right. Which is a wonderful part. <laughs> he um he was some he's someone who like I've been aware of him for years, but it wasn't until. I got a little bit older that I really realized how good he is because he, he was such an unassuming actor. Like he didn't, he did big performances if he needed to, but he was, it wasn't like attention grabbing performances. He was just Mm -hmm. like doing his job. Right. And he was deeply revered. Like I know Ian, I've heard Ian McKellen just say amazing things about him. Um, Yeah. Yeah. I just, that, that one was, was particularly gutting for me. I think he's just extraordinary in big night. And uh, just every time I saw him, I mean, he, he could just do, he could do it all. He was such a great, great actor. Um, oh, yeah. Yeah. Just, I don't know how much. I don't know. Just his, his Bilbo performance is, mm-hmm. I can't, yeah. I can't gush enough over it. Yeah, yeah. It's, it's pretty stunning. And apparently on set, he would like every take, he would do like a different variation of the character so, because mm-hmm. he was like, here, Pete, like. Just whatever version of Bilbo you want. Not like I don't think it was like this wild. Like okay, now I'm gonna play Bilbo as like a surfer dude. <laughs> you know? no, yeah, no. My, my immediate thought of that was the, the scene where he kind of becomes like deformed briefly when he tries to reach right, out for right. the ring, but he's just like, <laughs> <laughs> okay. Well, now I'm gonna be Bilbo, but like he's a stuffy banker. <laughs> <You know? laughs> but I think he would always. But now I'm do gonna be Bilbo, little... but he's like a used car salesman. <laughs> right. <laughs> And that, that's always stuck out to me because I thought, what a neat way to approach film acting where you're like, I'm, I'm ultimately going to keep a thread for the other actor and everything, but I'm going to give the director options so that they're not just like, well, okay, you you said it the same way 14 times. When was the lighting vest? But like you can re- yeah. he's giving the director and the editor more to choose from and more options, more ways to read the scene, which is really cool. I think that's a really neat way to approach it. And um, yeah, I, I know we didn't wa- we don't want to get too like hour or anything before we dive into what will possibly be a fairly silly episode <laughs> but um uh but yeah it's you know these are these are two guys who had long brilliant careers you know to work as consistently as they did mm-hmm. uh is is says something about talent especially when like ian holm he was like a character actor theater guy like you don't have a long career as an a, a career that long as an actor if you're not really really gifted, yeah. Um, which he was, so ah, deep love. Yeah, 2020 can just like just leave, <laughs> man. Just, tell me about just, it. Get out of here. Fun, 
Carl Reiner just the other day, like mm-hmm. just just dominoes. Stop. I don't know. Your Maybe it's for the design. best that that we have the uh, we're mentioning them a little late with this episode. I feel like if we had done them with Star Wars, it would not. <laughs> <Yeah>. Anyways, <laughs> but what uh, are we talking about instead of Star Wars? <laughs> Yeah, it's Dune at the, for the 200th episode because we all can do math. Dune. <laughs> David Lynch's <laughs> Dune. Came out in 1984. It has a 52% critic score on Rotten Tomatoes and a 66% audience score. <laughs> I don't know what's happening. is <laughs> weird. Tyler, I think this was ultimately your idea in the first Probably. place. So... <laughs> Take it away. First of all, those scores, like, I don't know why, but they just make sense to me. Like, in a, in a very, like, real, like, fundamental way. I was just like, oh, yeah, that, that tracks a lot. Because um, you've got, like, the uptick in the audience score where it's, like, people who have tried to, like, sell it as being, like, a cult classic, but yeah. have maybe not <laughs> succeeded yeah. totally. Um, yeah. Uh, all the Sting fans out there, they're just, yeah, like, sure. five stars. Um <laughs> No, it's it's zero stars because Sting doesn't win at the end. Uh, so, you know. Um, when you hashtag, you, not, hashtag, right. hashtag not my Sting. I, I told you to, to take it away, but before you take it away, <laughs> I just wanted to read the first, the, the, the first review I found on Rotten Tomatoes okay. because I think it really it sets the tone for, for how I'm coming into this compared to y'all who have actually read the books. Mm-hmm. Unless you have the book committed to memory, you'll find it practically impossible to follow the story. And that's from Michael Blowen of the Boston Globe. Sure. And I completely agree. Um, I read the book. I I read it for the first time earlier this year, uh, mostly because of the Denis movie. Uh, And so I was like, oh, I want to go ahead and, and be prepared. It's a book that I've been on my radar for a while. Um, I haven't read any of the sequels, so uh, I don't know. I don't think that is has particular bearing on this movie anyway. Uh, yeah. But yeah, I uh, I was very interested because I am also... Uh, we should probably address both our familiarity, familiarity with the book as well as familiarity with David Lynch. Mm-hmm. Um, for me, I am a massive Twin Peaks fan. I've I've watched the whole shebang with both series and Firewalk with me... Uh, that is my introduction to Lynch. I also watched Blue Velvet not too long ago. I'm trying to watch more of his movies, but I am ultimately a pretty big fan of Lynch, even though I, I don't know that I would say any of his, or either any of the three movies I guess I've seen now of his are anywhere close to being like my favorite movies. Um, mm-hmm. But he just fascinates me endlessly, and I love him. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> and I, that leading into Best and Worst Thing, my best thing about this movie, I think, is the fact that it feels like a Lynch movie. I, I think that mm. there's still... It's definitely scrubbed out a bit, and it's it's uh, cleaned up, and, and not as uh, sort of strange, maybe, as it could be, even though it is already a pretty strange movie. Um, but I really did not expect to, to feel it as much as a Lynch vibe as I did from, like, kind of the style of the movie. Um, and so I was, I was pleasantly surprised by that. I was, I was glad that I could, I know he completely disowns this movie, uh, because he just was not, uh, happy with (laughs) like any of how it turned out. I don't think he really 
I think it pretty much killed him on the the big blockbuster, uh, I guess, idea, uh, mm-hmm. where he just doesn't want to do that anymore after this. And obviously, he hasn't done a movie in years anyway. Um, but I, I think for what it was, I, I definitely got that vibe from that, and I was I was excited because there's a lot of weird stuff. There's a lot of cool, I think, designs, effects, bizarre effects, uh, mm-hmm. all all sorts of fun stuff to unpack. Um, my worst thing is that the movie has too many words. <laughs> it just, it just does. What is this, um, a book? <laughs> it was really fascinating watching it because the, we, we talked about this, uh, I, I think I'd use the phrase that of all the movies that like could have been four, three or four hours and that had the footage filmed to be three or four hours and, and got cut down for studio reasons, this is the most of them. <laughs> it's yes. It's just uh, you can tell early on they're trying to cram all this exposition in because they don't know what all they you know they're going to keep and they they don't know how they're going to get the audience to actually understand anything about this world. And they spend so long in the opening of the movie, and then it just all crashes to the end where they're just kind of like knocking plot elements out left and right. right. Um, and part of what they did to try to rectify this as well. Uh, is add narration, which I don't... I The way it's shot, I can't imagine <laughs> it was originally part of the plan. Um, yeah. It feels very much like a Blade Runner thing. I don't know for sure. Maybe it was, but uh, it feels a lot like the, the Harrison Ford infamous Blade Runner voiceover. Um, but there's narration from each character, like you're hearing what they're thinking at any given time. <laughs> yeah. And early on, it's like, oh, they're trying to explain these different relationships and what they're thinking at the time. Okay, this makes sense. Like, I get... it's It's heavy-handed and i don't love the way you've done it but i get why you had that narration but they felt yes. the need i guess like they got trapped into continuing to use that voiceover so that by like halfway through the movie the characters are just explaining what's happening on the screen that you can very clearly see <laughs> yes. and it's just like why what you don't yep. need to we we're good we're good now you've you've caught us yes. up to speed more or less I completely agree. as much as we will ever be we're caught up to speed i i i had i completely agree i uh, I understand the controversy o- over the Blade Runner uh, uh, voiceover and why people don't like it, but I also understand from the like people, the powers that be in that movie, going, we need people to understand this world, and the narration of that movie really only serves to explain like this is what this noun means, this is who this person is. But this movie, like you said, Tyler, it literally it goes so far. To where they just will show uh, Kyle MacLachlan's face and you'll hear him be like, Father, I'll avenge you. Like, <laughs> I wouldn't have been shocked if they had shown a character sitting down to eat and you heard them go, huh, soon I'll have more energy after this meal. Or, <laughs> no, what I thought when I was watching the film when um, when, when uh, Kyle MacLachlan is first going out to try and, like, get control of one of the worms, mm-hmm. I was really, really hoping that they would just, like... No self awareness, whatever. Just do it. Have him do a voiceover that says, "That is a big worm." <laughs> I, I thought you would say that they would have the worm narrate. <laughs> like, <laughs> okay, now, Terry, that's, time to go up to the surface. Sand, that's sand, the, sand, that's sand, the sequel sand, I need. I need. <laughs> I need sand, all sand, about sand, the worms. It'll be called Dune, I, all about the worms. It's just such a weird like. It got to a point where, like you said, Tyler, it's like we know you you are no you are now explaining things that we can all infer. You're no longer giving us a base understanding of what the world is. Yeah. You're giving us like characters going, 
Like if someone like laughed, they would go, huh, "That's funny." Yeah. Like, yeah. We know they're laughing, and we we know that Paul wants to avenge his dad. We know that the we get it. Like we can infer things about the scene. Or, or they're just repeating dialogue or thoughts that were important earlier, but mm-hmm. it's like, no, I get it. Like <laughs> I understand. You don't have to repeat the thing that Paul thought thirty seconds ago again. <laughs> like I yeah. got it. Um, Absolutely. And I I think a lot of that. This is I talking more about words and adapting because it is a it is, comes from a book. Uh, you know that's yeah. <laughs> that's how we got yes. here. Um, and it comes from a fairly long book. Uh, and it really feels to me like it has the syndrome of the first two Harry Potter movies before they decided they could maybe get a little more stylistic with this. And then they decided, let's make bad movies. Um, (laughs) before we hit that healthy middle, uh, the, the first two are, are really, really just stuck to, we have to have the plot of the book happen in front of your eyes. And that's very much what this movie does. There's a lot of scenes that feel like they're, I mean, I, maybe they're a little bit more different than I was thinking, but just remembering having read the book not too long ago, there's a lot of scenes that feel exactly like they came out of the book and they just directed mm. the, the movie of it, especially early on. And so you end up with what really feels like them literally adapting the book for four hours. Or, or I think that maybe the original intention was something more like three hours. I don't know, something like mm. that. Um, I've heard different reports as far as like what was originally supposed to happen. But you you had something that was significantly longer, and when they realized they needed to cut it down, they only cut out stuff from after the first, like, hour. (laughs) Right. Um, Yeah. Because there's so much stuff that just starts getting brushed over and thrown at you. And I'm like, how would anybody... I mean, Alex, you were telling us how confused you were the entire time. Um, I had no idea what was happening for most of the movie. Like, yeah, I could t- I could tell you within the scene what was happening, but I couldn't tell sure. you why it was happening. So I couldn't I think tell you what the character motivations were most of the time. Sure, I don't think we need to address like every bit, but as we get into it, there is definitely a lot I want to talk about in terms of things that completely either didn't get adapted at all or got brushed over towards the end. Because I think there's a lot of stuff there that got completely missed. Uh, and it they would catch up the viewer in really fascinating ways. Uh, and they just be basically, I think the one that specifically I actually laughed at, um, there's basically, I, I forget when it is. I think it's about halfway through the book. There's like a time jump um, mm-hmm. about two years, oh, which yes, happens yes. in the, the movie. And the way the time jump works in the book is that it's like two or three years. And then uh, they... In the book, they are kind of like, okay, we're now settling you into what the new status quo is. Paul's more of like a leader, and there's all this stuff. Um, and and it rolls everything out to you, and it takes some time, and it slows down a bit to explain all this before it really gets going again. Um, in, the, in the movie, they just do this voiceover. It's from, I don't know who the lady is supposed to be who narrates the beginning of the movie or gives you the introduction. It's oh, the emperor's uh, pr- daughter, right? Yeah. Princess. Irulan. Oh, I did not catch that. that oh my sense. God. Yeah. Something I caught that Tyler didn't. <laughs> well, so the, to, that is, that makes sense because each chapter in Dune is uh, prefaced by a quote from her talking about like, she's a historian talking about these events. Mm-hmm. That makes more sense. Okay. Um, anyway, she in the movie is just like, yeah, Paul uh, became the leader of the Fremen, and um, his mother had a daughter who has all the powers of the 
the Bene Gesserit or whatever. Right. Ben, ben Gesserit? The ben, I don't know. Uh, ben Gesserit, yeah. I only read it. Um, <laughs> ben, ben, ben Gazzara, I think. <laughs> it's all the powers sure. of actor Ben Gazzara. <laughs> um, and like the power it, it literally just rolls all this like over an image of dunes <laughs> and it's just like <laughs> oh okay there's no way that's gonna make any sense to anybody watching this um, yeah i was at, at that point i was just like i'm enjoying the movie more than i was for the first hour so i'll just roll with it <laughs> whatever it's almost done <laughs> yeah i think it's it's a poor uh, adaptation there's, because there's it giant tries... worms now. Whatever. <laughs> yeah, it's a poor adaptation because it wants you to visualize the book instead of thinking, "How can we turn this book into a movie?" So right. Uh, I agree. That rolls into my best and worst, Alex. If you don't mind me jumping in here. Oh no! Please <laughs> <laughs> take it uh, away. So, uh, my own uh, preface here is that I. I, I read the book several years ago and saw the movie several years before that. So most of my Dune knowledge is from like hazy memory and just like talking to people who know it better and, you know, cultural osmosis and everything. And David Lynch, like I really enjoy him. I've, I, I've seen the original Twin Peaks series and I've seen Mulholland Drive and Straight Story and the monkey short that he made earlier uh, this year or last year, <laughs> yes. which is pretty wild. It's very good. Um, and, uh, and of course, his guest spot as the bartender on the Cleveland Show, <laughs> I remember <laughs> fondly. Um, but uh, yeah, my, so my, my, okay. My best thing about this movie is going to be the practical effects. I'm a sucker for '80s science fiction fantasy. I think it's I just love looking at it. And I thought there's so many great uh, sets and costumes. I think the sandworms or Shy Halud look fantastic in this. That gross looking. Akbar mutant alien at the beginning is mm -hmm. super gross, but I think it looks really great. Baron Harkonnen, who's essentially in this movie just like a pus-covered floating baby, yeah. which is so hysterically funny. <laughs> when the emperor says, bring in that floating fat man, and then Baron Harkonnen does just float in like, hey, and his arms are all droopy like, what did you need? Um... It's so funny. But I loved all the practical effects, and I thought the movie, by and large, looked really good. Obviously, the digital effects are not very good. Like when Tom <laughs> McLaughlin and Patrick Stewart encase themselves in big squares and hit each other a lot. Yeah. I do also, I, I wonder and would imagine this is the kind of thing that also did not look good in 1983. Or maybe it did. Did I get it wrong again? 1984. I, I don't know why I'm convinced it's 83. Was that when, when Rise, or Rise of Skywalker? <laughs> yes, that was when Rise of Skywalker was out, yeah. <laughs> was that when Return of the Jedi came out? No, uh, Return of the Jedi was 1983. All right, well, it's probably some other movie. I'm confusing them. Um, the Terminator. Yeah. Uh, anyway, the one thing I've like learned, I think, from Twin Peaks is that uh, David Lynch uh, just likes to use really horrible effects and he doesn't really care. <laughs> there's a lot of stuff like that, even in the, the newer Twin Peaks. There's a lot of stuff that looks good, but there's also a lot of stuff where he just, like, it's the most bizarre, like, what are you doing? Um, and I think that was a very similar thing here in terms of okay. digital stuff, at least. Because it definitely did. Um, <laughs> so all of that, I, by and large, I really liked looking at the movie. And I think there were some genuinely beautiful shots of, like, 
drops hitting in like the like the water in the underground cavern things like because David Lynch mm-hmm. like is a good director and does have a sense mm-hmm. of image and frame and everything. Um, so my worst thing about this movie is going to be settle in here is is going to be uh, ex- the way they handle exposition um, and overall world building. So yep, which I will I, I will use the the opener as a, a sort of microcosm of this, if that's the right word. So. Obviously, in, in like genre fiction, world building is is so important, and it's really hard because you want people to understand you're in a you're in a different version of our world or a different world altogether. There's different rules. Here's how the magic works. Here's who the different species are. Whatever, but you also want them to care and be interested in the story. And it can be hard to do those things simultaneously. I'm reading a book right now called The Fifth Season by N.K. Jemisin. Mm. That's really really good, but has um, a lot of stuff that I've that I'm obviously unfamiliar with, but that I'm unfamiliar with even in the context of fantasy, like types of creatures and based on types of lore that I'm not familiar with, which is awesome. And she's doing such a great job of like ex- like explaining that world through character and through event. Like the more I read of the story, the more I understand the world therein, which mm-hmm. is really smart. Um, Philip Pullman does a great job in Golden Compass of like the main character's never been outside her home. So as she discovers the world, you discover the world, and I'm not going to tell you anything you don't need to know right. <laughs> until we get there. And then there's armored bears punching each other, and it's great. Sure. But but in terms of movies, I think two of the best examples of like good introductory world building are Star Wars and Lord of the Rings. Because Star Wars opens in what should be a very boring way with the crawler, but it works so well. It's really simple. It's very dynamic. The music is great. And you are reading it. But it, it doesn't overload you with information. It just goes, there's an empire, there's plans, there's a princess. We're never really going to explain how she's a princess, but she's a princess. Sure. And here you go. Here are some droids and Darth Vader. And so it's just enough for you to go, okay, I understand the opening scene. And then it unravels through the rest of the movie. And, and through the vision of Luke, uh, kind of in the same way you're describing, where it's like he's our uh, way into the world. After yes, that definitely. opening, and then we kind of grow out from him. Yeah, it explains everything for the opening, but then the rest of the movie is Luke, and it's not only people have like is Luke experiencing things and things are being explained to him, and that the that the crawler doesn't throw a bunch of nouns at you that you're like, what's a figrin Dan? <laughs> what? It's sure. like, oh, Empire. I get Empire. Sure, that makes sense to me. We have two names al- for Tatooine, <laughs> <laughs> right? But then when we hop over to like Lord of the Rings, that opener is so good because it's depicting everything. And we talked about the narration. The narration works so well in Lord of the Rings because the, narr- the, the, the words that Kate Blanchett is, is uh, narrating and the scenes that we're looking at complement each other and fill each other in. So she'll say something like, the ring had a terrible power, and then Sauron is messing people up. She doesn't go, and Sauron could use the ring to make people fly away in a battle, and then he makes people <laughs> fly away in a battle. Um, likewise, the movie will show you the dwarves and she's like seven went rings went to the dwarves and you're like oh okay cool i get it it doesn't feel like the movie's holding your hand too much it's like no here we want you to understand everything and now we're going to tell you the story but in dune it opens with just (laughs) virginia madsen just looking at the camera fading (laughs) in and out just just explaining things to you and it and virginia is a good actor i like her just fine but there's 
there's nothing it's not storytelling it's just she's like reading a textbook to you <laughs> she says something at the beginning like the beginning is a most curious place to start Ooh. and then she's like so here's basically what the planets are which is fine, except that like two scenes later, you get a much clearer depiction of what those yeah. planets are. And it's it's there, she she totally anticipated a joke of mine because I was watching it and she she kept fading off and I was thinking, oh, it's like she goes, oh, I forgot to tell you something, and then literally she fades away and she goes, oh wait, I forgot to tell you something, <laughs> and comes back in and she's like, also the spice is like so big here, it's like you don't even know. And there's worms that make it or do it or are it or something. Anyway, our hero's name is Paul. <laughs> See you later. And it's such a, it just it it's such a a, a, a guaranteed way to to like bore your audience from the beginning. <laughs> yeah, we're like I'm just looking at an actor just explaining things to me, not telling me a story, not drawing me into the world, just just listing words that I don't understand. Um. Alex, I, I don't, and I, we already have had a passing knowledge of this, but for someone who was going in cold, did that opening help you understand it at all, or did it get in your way? Oh, God, no, it got in the way. <laughs> I, and, like, like when it just started, like, when, when we start with that scene with the, with the Emperor, and I don't really know what the Emperor, like, what he does, or, or his connection yeah. to anything, because all these planets are so disconnected, and the giant alien creature thing shows up to talk to him in the giant glass box or whatever, mm-hmm. and it's, like, disgusting, and I'm like, I don't know what's happening. <laughs> what does this have to do with anything? Like, yeah. which, it, it if was I'm just not terrible. mistaken, I think that scene is created for the movie to fill in more information for you. It but I'm like, be. I don't think we needed it. <laughs> I think we could get... Uh, yeah. And, and, and th- throughout most of the movie is exposition. Yeah. And, like... That's such a, a weakness, I think, because again, Star Wars, Lord of the Rings, eventually the story just takes over and you're just watching the story. Yeah. You're not trying to figure out who's who and what does this mean and what are the implications. You're like, oh, no, now I'm just on this adventure. And it's funny because Lord of the Rings, there are consistent moments where you'll just hear like Gandalf go, oh, yes, Rohan, they have horses. Yeah. But like, <laughs> I don't know. It never really gets in the way. Lord of the Rings is also like amazing. Lord of the Rings um, also does a lot of foreshadowing. Instead of necessarily yeah. exposition, it's more like, ooh, what's this? Something, something's up over there. What's that about? Mm, is that going to yeah. be relevant? What's going on? And then, like, you're you're discovering it as the story moves along, but you're also getting little hints of what's coming and what they yeah. what to expect. And It's also edited well, because, like, yeah. dramatic montage of Aragorn, Gimli, and Legolas running to go, go save their friends, punctuated with, oh, let's look at this cool backdrop, and Aragorn going... Rohan, home of the horse lords. I'm like, okay, it, it was used to punctuate a really cool scene. Yeah. Got it. Yeah, and and like you have to have an understanding. It's it's a bit different in books, but in movies you have to have an understanding that like the audience is not going to immediately pick up on everything. And so, so much of the storytelling is about deciding which informations, what information the audience does and doesn't need. Mm-hmm. And the, I don't know. I, I think this movie is is. It spends the entire movie explaining itself to you, yes. But it never, at no point, does the storytelling really take over, and you get to just like, it, like be with the characters, and, and and not all movies have to be about character. But anyway, um, I, as I think a do, this one as a Dune novice, this was borderline incomprehensible. <laughs> 
Yeah, and it's a dense book. Like it, and it's a book that's so allegorical, and it's supposed to be commentary on a bunch mm-hmm. of things. There's a lot in that book to try to pack into a movie in terms of event, but also in terms of meaning. Right. That like, it's it's. I understand it's a really hard thing to do, but explaining your way through the entire thing is not. That'd be like yeah. if I was in a play and I spend the entire play going, okay, so now my character is going to go over here, and then I'm going to tell them that. I really like them, but I'm not pretty. I'm not too happy with what they did. So let me tell them that. Hey, I didn't like that. Now they're going to get mad, and they're going to tell me that they don't that they're mad at me. Actually, <laughs> anyway. So Alex, what are your bests and worsts? Uh, best thing is going to be villain performances. Okay. Um, this is. I was having like weird flashbacks to the Star Wars prequels while watching this, so I mm. think this following Rise of Skywalker was actually very, very effective. <laughs> um, <laughs> for some reason, I found nearly all of the hero characters boring and flat, like they were directed and written by George Lucas. But then the villains were all having fun, like mm. Ian McDermott. Yeah. <laughs> sure. So like... I guess it's the Baron Harkonnen, the, the flying yeah. fat man, as as he's referred to in the movie. I thought he was, like, a ton of fun. I don't mm-hmm, think yeah. he fit the tone at all. Like, I had no idea what was happening. <laughs> oh, the, vil- the villain scenes are like they're in a different movie. Yes. Yeah. But, like, him, Brad Dorf, Sting, oh, they're all yeah. just having, like, a ton of fun. And I feel like yeah. all the heroes are just kind of side-eyeing them uh, across the set going, oh, you guys are having fun. We're just bored out of our minds. <laughs> Brad Dorf is great in this movie. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I had He's no idea all these, what his like, character gesture. was doing, but he was he was fun. <laughs> and he had those, like, crazy eyebrows. Yeah. And I, I just want to say, like, I, I didn't like the movie at all. I thought it was pretty bad. But I, I don't have any, like, malice or ill will towards the movie, particularly because it's not a situation where they said, all right, we need to make this different from the book. The book just yeah. isn't going to fly. we got to do this differently. It tries to be a faithful adaptation, and it just doesn't work, which I can respect. So There's there's definitely some stylistic things. I mean, the the Baron, in the book, it's a lot more like, I mean, the the idea of his character, which I don't think, at least at the time, could have really been effectively portrayed, is that he's this very obese man who uses the, the weights to allow him to walk around, basically. Okay. I mean, he's, he, I think he's floating still, but, like, he's not, like, flying. <laughs> he's, right. He's not... He's not <laughs> gotcha. Um, and I don't think he's described as that gross-looking as far as his face and everything and, and disease. I, I liked um, the touches but of, it was like, neat. The, the boils and pus, and the, the, he yeah. constantly had the doctors messing with it trying mm-hmm. to fix him. I liked all of that. That was really yeah. neat. And th- that's when, there's touches like that throughout the movie, I think, that are... Uh, sort of interesting uh, riffs on what the book's going for that uh, I think are, I don't know if it's all Lynch. It seems like they had some really creative um, like prop and costume designers and stuff on set. Yeah. Uh, question, question is, is the thing about like having a metal thing connected to your heart that you could just pull out and kill someone like, is that <laughs> in the book? Because that freaked me out. I don't think it is. And also, um, the I had Baron... no idea what the purpose of that scene was, but it was terrifying. Yeah, the Baron murders a a, a little boy, not a little boy, I guess, but a young a young man. Yeah. Um, and in the book, it's implied that it's it's more sexual and predatory. 
I don't know. Um, I was I was kind of getting that vibe. From that that, that vibe is in there, but like it's <laughs> it's not. It's not that he's killing them and like bathing in their blood. Okay, it's it's more direct. Um, so I thought that was interesting and it, effective. I mean, it's still yeah. No, horrifying. no, just the like I had no idea that was coming. So that was right. And, and they use that against one of the older guys when he's he's kind of held prisoner. They're like, yes. you don't want us to pull that out, do you? Or you know, yes. something like that. Which was a whole straight. There's there's a whole kind of through line in the book that i think is the most interesting thing that you could have adapted to like focus the plot on that they don't do that i want to i want to get into but do your okay do your worst Uh, yeah yeah uh in summation i liked the all the villains and they were in a completely different movie and it was a movie that i liked a lot more (laughs) than what i was watching true yeah um i think all of our our worst things are kind of just like in the same circle um i'm just going to go with the overall editing um, mm-hmm. and not like individual scenes. I, I mean, you already talked about the narration, so that's that's a bit of a problem. But I, I just like the first hour or so is the first act of the movie, and the movie's yeah. a little over two hours, so it just feels like I feel like Paul and his family getting attacked, and and most of his friends being killed, and and basically them losing this big fight should happen within the first thirty minutes. I think yep. you should quickly get the exposition out of the way and, and get that taken care of and just have the rest of the movie have time to breathe. Because mm-hmm. like you said, sure. once we get to to Paul and his mother out in the desert with, with the other people with the blue eyes, I don't remember Grimm. names of – I, I yep. don't remember any of the Dune terms. Um, once we get to that part, like it's just like, okay, we got to speed this up. Got to speed this up. Got to get to the end. Got to get to the end. Yep. Um, and it was just it, – it was so strange. I'll, I'll be honest with you all. I had to watch the movie in four separate viewings, <laughs> three of which were that first hour. Yeah. Like once I got to the battle where the the Harkonnens are attacking the Atreides, mm-hmm. I was like, okay, I'm on board. Like I still don't know what's happening, but at least it's interesting. <laughs> um, the first hour is just abysmal, <laughs> and it, it's just like I, I'm. No, I was noticing so many just easy corners that they could have cut in order to simplify the story and and make it a little more comprehensible number one being don't have two different terms for the desert planet choose one for the movie and stick with it (laughs) just little touches like that to help simplify things like i think the emperor of the universe or whatever he is that can be cut entirely i think this could just be a story about two families fighting each other and it would be fine i don't know Um, well that's so, I think that's. I was just gonna it, say it, it like it, like you said it, it feels like a four hour movie that's been truncated into two hours. So yeah. I mean, I I, think, I I feel Lynch's pain is what I'm trying to say. Sure. If that is the case, if he had to edit this down and try and make it somewhat manageable, yeah, I I feel his pain just didn't work. Um, I think your point about the Emperor is a good springboard because I I want to talk a bit about some of the major changes or stuff, not necessarily stuff that got left out, but stuff that was not apparent. Um, Can you explain that opening with the emperor and, and the giant alien thing talking to him? I had no idea what was going on. <laughs> Basically, as far as I could tell, it was just to explain the situation in terms of like, okay, you've got the Harkonnens, you've got the, cause it's, it's more subtext in the books for a while that the emperor wants the Harkonnens to kill the, um, Atreides. Atreides. Uh, like that that's more yeah. like oh we think the Harkonnen's working with the emperor and we got to find a way to power play him out of everything um but 
talking about the emperor at the end of the book um i believe i've got this right Britain, i don't know if you remember enough to correct me it's fine if not we'll we'll roll with it um i believe the ending is that paul basically forces the emperor to um marry him to his daughter mm. so that uh they like form a, a tenuous peace or whatever yeah right. um and so that's the whole and that's explains more about like why that was uh, a plot a running plot thread that she was uh narrating in, in history is what was going on um and it's it's more of like uh paul's power play in terms of he's trying to uh basically turn or, or re-establish the atreides in the political sphere um that sounds it, familiar I, I i don't remember for sure yeah i think that's right and the uh, the okay. overall ending is fairly different in the sense that uh that's i mean that's really more of what the point is that paul's trying to gain political power and like you know sort of swing things into a way where he he now has control he's not really like turning into uh dune god and like okay. the the rain doesn't happen that's not a that's not a thing in the book um it doesn't start yeah. raining because of him uh so it's a little bit more him playing with uh the various political powers as they all converge on arrakis and he's like i've got you all here and you're gonna listen to me because i can blow up all the spice um and the other interesting thing because there he has the duel with fade rotha fade rotha mm -hmm. uh yeah at the end sting um but that is the thing that i if if you were you told me hey you gotta adapt the book dune into two and a half hours that's what i would really focus on because there's multiple duels that get left out of the movie mm -hmm. um yeah i i was the whole time i was watching the movie i was like sting looks cool is he gonna do anything yeah. like he keep, um, they keep threatening oh he's like this really cool assassin guy who knows sure. what he's gonna do and then he just does nothing and at the end he loses a knife fight yeah like and a, so, a pretty badly choreographed knife fight <laughs> sure. in my opinion um i don't think you rush a guy with a gun and just strength something action. else for a guy with a knife but you rush a guy with a gun irishman <laughs> never mind <laughs> um <clears throat> i was gonna say uh, basically, you, you've got that opening where he fights uh, Patrick Stewart. Um, <clears throat> he's dueling with him. And so that's the thing. And that's like the first setup in the book and the movie. But then in the book, yeah. you've got multiple instances where Fade Rotha, I'm probably butchering that, it's fine, uh, fights um, <clears throat> a, a guy, like a slave warrior on the Harkonnen homeworld. And there's this whole thing where Thufir, who is Thufir, I don't know how to pronounce any of these names. I've only I think read it's them. Thufir. Um, is the the guy that they captured and put the little heart thing in in the in the movie? Right. Um, who he, doesn't come back? At who the just disappears? End? Yeah, he just disappears. Um, in the book, uh, Baron Harkonnen like uses him uh, and and tries to take him, have him replace his Mintat him as Mintat because Brad Dourif's character dies um in the movie or in the book sorry and i don't think he does in the movie if i don't if i remember correctly i think no, he just uh, disappears Paul, he just Paul's kind of father kills him with the okay. uh, poison right or right yes yeah I, I think yeah yeah phased out for that um yes which is what happens in the in the book um 
And so he replaces him because Thufur is also, oh, he's like another a new Mintat that can replace me and I'm blackmailing him with this poison, so it's fine. Um, but then there's like this whole little thing where he's actually still loyal to the, to the Atreides and so he is like playing Fade Rautha against his father, the Baron. And so there's a whole thing going on there where, where they're making like power plays and it's like, oh, is he trying to... Um, is the son trying to overtake the father? Like, what's going on there? And the Baron's getting paranoid and all that stuff. Um, and so there's this duel where a lot of that comes to light in terms of what he's planning, and the Baron starts to get suspicious of his son and all this stuff. But basically, in the duel, um, Fade, whatever, does a like very tricky thing with a knife, kind of like what he does, to, or what he tries to do to um, Paul at the end, where he has a little knife in his chest or whatever. And he's trying to grab Paul into him. Um, he does that to this warrior guy. And so it's like an establishing of, okay, he doesn't play fair. He's kind of a tricky, you know, he uses poison. What's what's going on there? Um, and Don't so we then, have a voiceover from Paul when, when yes, like, he, he we looks do. at it and he's, poison. <laughs> <laughs> like, no, I, I, I figured it was something lethal, Paul. Yeah. yeah. It doesn't look like it'd be fun to get stabbed with it anyway. Um, but yeah, so there's that. And then also... Paul duels with, I forget what the arrangement is, but he duels with one of the Fremen to, who like challenges his authority and is like, I don't like you being an outsider, yada, 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 very classic stuff. Um, and I, there's also a whole thing where Everett McGill's character, Stilgar, um, yeah. he, I don't know if they duel, I think he, there's like this whole thing where he has to find a way to um, take over the Fremen without challenging his authority and making him have to kill him. Like he doesn't, he likes Stilgar, so he doesn't want to kill Stilgar. So he has to like bend the rules and and basically convince the Fremen that it's okay that he's taking over power without killing him. Um, so that's the whole thing. So like duels are important. Um, yeah. In the book, and there's that running through line, and I feel like that would be a really good thing to focus on. And I don't think that it, it's necessarily something that appeals to David Lynch because he doesn't direct uh, action much. <laughs> like he's not right. like a big, he's no Michael Bay. Um, <laughs> <laughs> and so I you know it's I, I think that that's you're not why sweaty that... enough you need to glisten more <laughs> um, if you don't have a camera flare in this next pass I swear I'm gonna <laughs> Mark your name is Chance Brickfist and I need you to <laughs> just be a sweaty American boy your name is Cade Yeager. Now, Mark, <laughs> you're an inventor. They have to let you invent things. <laughs> um. <laughs> I'm so tired of all these monkey fighting short takes in my Monday to Friday movie. <laughs> anyway, um, I feel like that dual through line is something that would have been a lot more visual and interesting and would get you more, yeah. a lot more invested in what the characters are doing because it's like, okay, they're actively getting involved in these fights. That's something interesting. Um, whereas... Especially because like the very few action scenes that are in this movie, like there's the opening where Paul does the knife fight with the shield thing, which was already strange. Yeah. But then it, there's he's fighting that robot thing and he's mm -hmm. just kind of circling around it and like avoiding <laughs> getting hit. I'm like, this isn't, this is so lame. <laughs> and then he uses, I don't, I didn't, even prop, I didn't even understand how the guns worked. 
until yeah. we got to the latter half of the movie. I also don't... Is that a thing that I just completely missed from the book, Britain? Um, I don't recall. I, I couldn't tell you. don't remember it being quite like that. Like, I don't think that's what they teach the, the Fremen, if I'm not mistaken. I don't know. I thought that whole thing about the, the vocal stuff, I, was, I, I didn't realize that. Um, maybe I just completely like misread the book or I don't know. I've forgotten it at this point, but, but it seemed to be like a lot of the soldiers, like in that big battle at the end of the first hour, they're just like using laser guns. Mm -hmm. (laughs) And I was just like, why not? All right. Once again, you want to simplify things. Just have everyone have laser guns. (laughs) Oh, oh, here we go. Okay. This is from the Dune wiki. Um, (laughs) Uh, so basically, in the movie, after he uses the the gun, he says, Paul says, my own name is a killing word. Will it be a healing word as well? Um, originally in the novel, this line referenced the holy war beginning in Paul's name. However, in the context of the name being a trigger for the modules, it became somewhat more literal. <laughs> so there's that. I believe that's all all the, the module stuff like with the gun is made up, which is strange. Um, it's a neat idea, I guess, but I, I don't know. I thought that was odd. Can I, well, can the, I the, ask? The, the, oh, sorry. Go ahead. Go ahead. No, I was saying the lack of the dueling thing, what, what, what it, the, the res, end result becomes, oh, we have Sting and haven't let him do anything yet. Eh, give him a fight because he's famous. Yeah. yeah. Right. Also, I don't, I was looking through the cast list. I don't know that Fade Routh has been cast for the Villeneuve movie. Mm-hmm. Maybe it's like a secret reveal, and they it's going to be like... It's, it's okay. It's Matt Damon. You just don't know it That'd yet. That'd be great. Um, That'd be cool. Or Saoirse Ronan. <laughs> they don't... Or Tom Holland. Um, they don't... <laughs> if we're looking for someone to match Timothy Chalamet. Um, yeah. Yeah. That would actually be pretty they, cool. <laughs> it'd be very fun. Um, I don't know if they actually would have to. I feel like you could... You could push that off to the next movie and just have more of like that stuff coming up. But I don't know. I was going to ask how much does the Dune movie cover just the first Dune book or is it like, does it take over multiple books? No, it's just the the book. Okay. Yeah. Just the first single one, the first one. Um, cause it got to the end now and, 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 uh, Paul is basically Dune God and I'm like, Oh, it just ends. (laughs) Okay. Yeah. Whereas the book is more like, Okay, Paul has successfully led the rebellion of the Fremen against the Harkonnens. He's taken back Dune. Now he can start to be like more of a political player. And let me ask you this, because I don't think the movie uh, really covers this. Uh, it mentions it, but I don't think it really brings it forth, Alex. Um, did you did you at all get the vibe that Paul's like prime internal struggle is the uh, fact that he does not want to begin a jihad in his name? <laughs> Nope. <laughs> Cuz that's like the point is basically Not in that, the slightest that he knows that if he starts to lead these people the second he went I'm going to avenge my father and kill them all that kind of just like um never presented itself to me. Sure. Yeah, the the whole idea in the book is that he is basically he he has these like prophetic sort of visions and and he can see the paths that he is taking like that's what uh, that's what his powers become towards the end is that he can start to see what all the consequences of his actions will be okay so and, so he's so he actually has genuine concerns about if i cause all this violence yes will will it 
ultimately be for the best or will it be yes. a horrible because horrible decision he's 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 worried he doesn't want this this army to go flying out across the universe and and invading and destroying and and reaping other worlds oh that's um, interesting yeah <laughs> i think he's, he's he's a real jojen reed sure um i think there's a line or two about it in the movie um it does not really or i mean there might be more but it it it, it all gets buried in everything else no. that they're trying it, to do at the same if time. you if you if you told me that was that was what what everyone who who submitted the final cut of this movie that was the intention of of Paul's final <laughs> motivation in that that latter half of the movie I would have been like nope <laughs> yeah nope um i did have I, I did have one additional question going going back to the issue with the narration because there are psychics in this movie yeah, yeah. and they firmly establish like several are- key characters are psychics i it took me a long time to realize that sometimes the the voiceover was just narration. <laughs> there was a good chunk where I'm yeah. just like, is it is Paul psychically communicating with someone right now? That's funny. Yeah, I, I was I, so I, lost. They don't, do, they don't do a good job distinguishing when it's like psychic communication and when it's just narration. Yeah, yeah. that's funny. When Ben Gazzara is talking to them. <laughs> um. I think ultimately what we were talking about with Luke where where you kind of have or I mean any other number of protagonists in fiction um where you have them be our our gateway into the universe you really got to do that with Paul in this if you want to have any chance yeah. of adapting the movie into something worth worth watching um because the opening of the book is the scene where he sticks his hand in the the box the ganja bar okay. yeah. and and that establishes like yeah the the ganja bar and it's like oh this is the beginning of Paul's struggles because he's like, because he survived that, the idea is, oh, he might actually be uh, the, the Kwisatz Haderach. He might, he might be the yeah. chosen one. No, another um, question. Do they explain the prophecy in, in, in the book at oh, all? It, it, it goes very deep into like, yeah. it's actually very fascinating because it's all about like the Bene Gesserit have, spread like throughout the galaxy these seeds of prophecy lo- a long time ago and basically they've created things that future Bene Gesserits can use to like play off of because yeah. they know what the they know what the native people believe because they planted it there so like they planted these prophecies and then they can use those prophecies to like basically say things that make the people think that they're magical and like kind of influence them a little bit more. It's yeah. a really cool, like interesting idea, interesting take on prophecies. Yeah. That um, sounds it interesting. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, as opposed my... like the, this movie should, should just, if it's not gonna, if it's just going to throw it out there for the sake of exposition, it should just dump it. Like I wouldn't even have a prophecy or a chosen one element to this movie. Sure. Like it feels so haphazard and just so it feels so much like an afterthought yeah like like they just start well, mentioning like is paul the chosen one and i'm like <laughs> i don't know what that means <laughs> yeah <laughs> and well that's the point too of uh, that's why i was bringing up the gam jabbar scene because i think that's a pretty cool scene in the movie where his, his yeah. hands burning the the effect of his flesh burning off and everything yeah that and, was neat like that's very effective and cool um but when that's the opening a you're you're immediately more attached to paul and you get 
immediately thrown into his storyline and his motivation and, and what's going to happen with him throughout the, the story more. But in the movie, this happens like half an hour in. Um, and yeah. it's the whole idea is like that happens before they leave for Arrakis. And so like it's just a thing, a test that's happening very early on. And that's the first introduction to the universe. And so in the movie, that scene just kind of gets lost. Like it's just, oh, this is one of the scenes that has happened. Whereas I think if you started the movie with that scene, it would be a lot more interesting and, and draw us in a lot more quickly because it's like, oh, this is a really weird, what are they doing to this, this poor boy? What's happening? Oh, he's, he's fine. Okay. What? Like you're immediately asking more questions about Paul than what the heck is going on with this wider universe. And I think you can simplify so many of the extra elements yeah. to just be like, what's happening from Paul's perspective? Let's just follow that. He can learn about the political stuff. It's also a nice counterbalance because the it, it sets this theme of because the whole fear is the mind killer. I can't be afraid because then I can't become this thing. And yeah. counterbalancing that with oh, but I don't know if I want there to be a jihad in my name causing all this destruction. Is that fear? Is that concern? What's the difference between the two? Yeah. Like it gives him it gives him something to overcome within himself to then be challenged later, which is interesting. Look, look, fear leads to anger, and anger leads to hate, (laughs) and hate leads to boredom. Do you guys think Dune is George Lucas's favorite movie? (laughs) I mean, I wouldn't be surprised. This this felt eerily similar to to the the Star Wars prequels. Like, Mm -hmm. this feels like what, what the original Star Wars would have turned out to be if George Lucas had complete creative control on the film. Sure. This I is think George Lucas' favorite movie is uh, Pretty Woman, but I don't know. That's just a hunch. <laughs> it's a tie. <laughs> he He's always asking people to, like, close a necklace box whenever he reaches into it. So you can be like, <laughs> Big mistake. Huge. <laughs> anyway. Um... So I, I think it's very we talk, we, funny. We talked about the emperor. I think it's very funny that Jose, uh, Jose Ferrer is in this movie. Uh, Jose mm-hmm. Ferrer, for those who don't know, he was like a, a big deal in like the old age of Hollywood. He won an Oscar for playing Cyrano de Bergerac. Uh, he was in Joan of Arc and Moulin Rouge and all this stuff. Like he's a he was a big name, very classy actor, very very good actor. Um, and it's just really interesting to see him in this movie and, like, committing <laughs> to the movie and saying these things. Yeah. But it's also interesting. He has a David Lynch connection. His son, Miguel Ferrer, was in Twin Peaks. Um, uh, as the, I thought his name sounded agent. familiar. Yeah, who does my favorite speech from the show about love. He was also mm-hmm. in RoboCop. And, and Jose Ferrer's uh, nephew. Yeah. His uh, nephew, George Clooney, directed Leatherheads. <laughs> if anybody knows that movie. So. <laughs> Accurate. <clears throat> he is actually his uncle, which is kind of funny to watch that movie and be like, you're related to George Clooney. <laughs> um, there's, anyway. there's a bunch of little, like, Twin, Twin Peaks connections. Um, is it Jack Nance? Is that his name? Jack Nance is in it, yeah. Uh, and he's, I mean, he's just like a David Lynch stalwart. He's an Eraserhead and all sorts of stuff. And then um, Everett McGill. Yeah who I mentioned is also in there. Um, I'm really sad because I feel like this movie helped springboard Patrick Stewart into Star Trek The Next Generation, which meant he was already on a TV show when Twin Peaks came out. Because I I wish Patrick Stewart could be on Twin Peaks. I wish that was like the thing he was known for. 
I'm sure he's very happy that he got known as as Picard. But you know, just I just like Pat- to imagine that alternate universe. Patrick Stewart has a great moment in this movie where it's uh, Paul and Gurney Halleck, <laughs> pa- uh, Patrick Stewart, and Everett McGill mm-hmm. Stilgar. Uh, Everett McGilgar are all hanging out and they're all talking and uh, it's, it's before the big battle and Paul says something like, do we have worm sign? And Patrick Stewart does this <laughs> smile like, did you just say worm sign? <laughs> because if so, that's awesome. <laughs> oh boy. You know what? Actually, guys, can we cut real quick? Space is pretty fun. <laughs> <laughs> he just he just looks suddenly so happy like did you say worm sign paul <laughs> uh i also do like that they give him long hair at the end of the movie you can't really mm-hmm. tell but like he does have like extensions which is sure oh he's the best well the cast is in this movie is wild like max, max von sedow is in this movie um yeah we mentioned Brad Dorif and Virginia Madsen. Mm-hmm. Alicia Witt, who's a character actress who we've all seen in multiple things. Uh, Vanilla Sky, one of Alex's favorite movies. She was on Walking Dead and Justified. Yeah, it's and not a joke, by the way. No, no, for sure. Yeah. And she, um, <laughs> she plays the little girl who is very unintentionally funny in this movie. Yes. My brother. And then there's a point where she totally like stabs somebody and just goes like, Argh! and then kind of <laughs> runs out a hole in the wall. The the effect of, of the psychics using, like, their superpowers and, and just kind of, like, mm-hmm. giving them horror movie voices was was a choice. Yeah. It was a choice. Fascinating. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, I would agree. Um, I was going to say, uh, it is interesting because the entire, like, third act set piece of the worms, um, the... That is more like they don't use. If I'm remembering correctly, maybe I'm maybe I'm not. I don't believe they actually use the worms to attack the Harkonnens at the end of the movie. Um, and there's also a weird bit where uh, Paul is. So there's that scene where Paul's like in the desert and he drinks the life water of life, and then all the worms show up and the worms aren't attacking. Yeah, um, that's yeah, not I'd, a thing. I, I had no clue what was going on. <laughs> I had no clue. The idea in the book is that there's this thing called the water of life that's actually super deadly, but then, like, if you can ingest it and you're super magical or whatever, you can, like, turn it into not poison and it can heal people. Or It's it's a whole thing. And he takes it, and it takes him, like, two days to come out of this coma that it puts him in. But it's just, like, in a cave. <laughs> Whereas this is, like, he's on, he's in the middle of the desert and there's all these worms that are, like, hailing him, <laughs> like, from... As, and they're not attacking, and it's fascinating and interesting choice again. Um, I did actually. I would, was not expecting the movie to pull off the warm writing scene in in any sure. way, but I actually like that quite a bit. Like the way, yeah, that They don't, I think, explain how their worm writing apparatus works because the idea is that he sticks it into like under a ridge of the worm, and it opens right. up. And the reason the worm turns is supposed to be because the worm's trying to avoid getting sand under the crevice. Like, it feels the... the oh, I had mm. no idea. <laughs> yeah, I don't th- I don't think they mentioned that at all. No. Um, but that's how they get the worms to turn turn up. But either way, I thought I was like, oh, that was actually, like, neat. They did the whole thing. I, w- I wasn't well, sure if yeah. they were going to. I, I, I have to... 
once again, just as I was watching the movie, I was like, why don't you just simplify this, do this, do this, like like condense mm-hmm. it. What is the point of having the scene where he figures out how to, to get on top of a worm and ride it? When five minutes later he drinks the the water of life or yep. whatever, and then he's like, "Okay, I control the worms because I'm God now." Right. Cut the scene and- where he, he <laughs> learns to control the worms manually. Um, well, that's so. It's it's a couple of things because one, the idea is that that's just like a rite of passage, right? And and they talk about that a little bit yeah. that it's a rite of passage. You have to, to become a fremen. You have to ride the sure. worm. Um, but then also. The whole thing with the water of life and him going into a coma is that he learns that he can then uh, basically set off a chain reaction to destroy all the spice. And it's not re- because he learns like the worms and the spice are connected. And it's not really anything to do with controlling the worms or like mind controlling them or being the worm god. Um, it's it's more just, oh, he, he realizes he has this bargaining chip now and he can use it. I don't I don't know what... I don't... <laughs> Things got confused in translation. Oh yeah, you, you think? I would argue. But also, his discovery that the worms and the spice are connected, and may, maybe this was just me already knowing it, but like I thought that had already been established in the movie. Like I thought we already knew that the worms made the spice or something. A little bit. They they talk about it. Um, it's more. I think it's just a lot more subtle in the books in terms of how they reveal it, where it's like. Oh, the worms and spice okay. are connected. How's that about? And then by the end of the movie, they've talked more about the worm, or the end of the book, I should say. They've talked more about the worms, and they know what's going on. And then, like, they, you learn gotcha. this revelation. It's actually impactful. Where the movie's okay. just kind of like, yeah, worm spice, it's fine. <laughs> and yeah, it can yeah, worm spice. Yeah. So, I don't know. Gotcha. So... What are all the uses of the spice? I understood that it was used for... It's basically our, our hyperspace or our... Um, hmm. Whatever it is in Star Trek. It, it's it's how we get across hmm. space. That's our that's kind of our MacGuffin for doing that. But I, I didn't really understand. Humans can ingest it? Mm-hmm. Yeah, so all the, the people with blue eyes have been, have been on the spice. If you know what I mean. Okay. <laughs> I th- I thought it was Which just is why... they had been living out in the desert long enough that that's just a thing that happens because this no, universe the, is weird. It's because they're intaking spice is okay. the idea, and so that's why they have. And that's why Max von Sydow's character Liet Kynes has um, the blue eyes because he's like a human who came to Arrakis, and then there's this whole thing where he became like one with a Fremen, and then of course he had the daughter that uh, Paul falls in love with, and Sean Young, the whole thing. Um, but and there's also Rachel a whole scene Blade Runner, sure. Ah, <laughs> funny that uh, she was in like two big sci-fi box office disasters. Sure. <laughs> um, there's also a whole scene where in the book that I was sad we didn't get because it, it would have been more Max Mancito where, um, Paul, uh, I forget how it works. I, somehow I believe Paul ends up finding Liet Kynes out in the desert. They have more discussion, yeah. and there's a whole other thing. And he and he's the one who reveals, like, oh, the Fremen are actually working to try to turn the the world into a livable place. There's this whole thing where, I mean, they talk about it a couple of times in the movie, but there's this whole idea that, like, the Fremen have been taking out the Imperial uh, ships so that they, and satellites, so they don't know that they're growing, like, actual plants on Dune. 
and they're actually creating ecosystems that work. Like there's the, there's a whole sub sub text there that I I mean it doesn't really come up in the the end of the book, so I I think it's more of a future thing, but I don't know. My only other thought is that I thought it was weird how so much of the middle of the movie is like Paul and his mother were focusing on them. And then once Paul gets out and he, and he starts leading the, the Fremen, his mother's just like, she's got nothing to do. Mm-hmm. I thought that was yeah. just very strange. I feel like they involve her more in the book because of like giving birth to Alia and all this stuff. Yeah. But, but I, I felt like they would have used her as sort of... She would be the person that Paul would go and talk to when he's looking for advice of, like, leading yeah. people or starting a revolution yep. or going along with, maybe I don't want to start a genocide in no. my name. She's, she's a lot and more then, involved. And then she can be the one. That she, she, she pulls out her, um, her evil uh, uh, supernatural voice and she's, we will kill them all. <laughs> <laughs> There's a lot more of her helping, out, helping them train the Furman and all that stuff. Like that, that, she spends a lot more time getting ingrained in their culture. And there's a lot, she's bouncing off of Paul because he's trying to figure out what their customs are and he's having to use his knowledge and be super smart and figure out how to like convince them that he is the Kwisatz Haderach. Um, well, that's interesting. So, yeah. And, and, and she's also a way to, she's also like a window into how Paul is changing. Yeah. She's concerned for like, my son is becoming this greater thing, and is that good and bad? And is it gonna is is it going to change him and, yeah. and all of that? So, yeah, yeah, I, she's a real Catlin Atreides. Like I I I, I do wonder <laughs> how if this movie is if one of the faults is it's too slavishly close to the books. Or the, no, that's the, what I was saying book. with with the my my worst thing is that I think it is it I mean it's it it is literally exactly what they did with the first two Harry well, Potter just, books. It's just ironic because like I, I mean the first two Harry Potter movies I think handle it a lot better, but then again those well, books are a lot shorter. <laughs> yeah. Um, <laughs> so so they're not having to deal with oh we got to cut out this 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 like yeah, it's yeah. not as big of a, an issue. Um, exactly. And those end up being a lot more comprehensible even if they're just. Maybe slightly above average. Um, <laughs> but we don't really find that problem a whole lot in terms of adaptations. Normally it's just like, no, they're – sometimes it's like, oh, these are very faithful, but they're very distinct, substantial changes. And yeah. I, I don't think we, we come across adaptations all that often where they're just like, if you took the book and made it a movie. <laughs> mm-hmm. Yeah. Except for like short stories like – Arrival, yeah. I think, is pretty close to the short story, okay. which is obviously easier to do because it's it's a short story right. <laughs> that I you feel are expanding like, into a feature. I feel like we've seen a lot more, and I know there's other examples of this that I can't think of, um, but I feel like we've seen a lot more of filmmakers realizing that short stories are much easier to expand into a movie than uh, yeah. like full-length books are. Um, yes. I think that's why well, like we've really seen the transition from... Uh, just like I don't know, adapt Dune into one movie. It's fine. Until like now, it's oh, you're you know, if you have a big book adapted into multiple movies or turn it into like this whole television series, like expand it. Like I think people, we've come a long way in terms of adaptations. We have, yeah. Um, but it's also strange because I feel like people make a TV series, but then audiences start clamoring for no, we want multiple seasons, and it's like, but we already no, this is it. This yeah. is the whole thing. <laughs> 
This is a mini series. Calm down. <laughs> this this does. I I I am curious about about the new movies. But this does come off as no. This should be like a, a, a HBO series or something. Yeah. This feels very much like Game of Thrones. Like I'm imagining if they just tried to condense like the first. It almost feels like if you condense the first two seasons of Game of Thrones into a movie, like that's yeah. very strange. Yeah. I think that's a good comparison. Well, and it's just, or similarly to how, like, in The Last Airbender, they tried to take an entire season of television and make it one movie, and then they, obviously there's a lot of problems in that movie, but you just, you give yourself too many events, and especially since Dune is also, it's it's not necessarily that the world itself is super complicated, it's that the politics are complicated, kind of like Song of yeah. Ice and Fire. Yeah. Like, Westeros is a pretty accessible world, it's just that there's so many things happening right and so many ways of thinking and dune is a little closer to that uh, on top of all the allegory stuff allegory stuff they're trying to do so you know he just david lynch put too much on his plate and tried to fit it into one picture right yeah and and i i, I feel the gram i feel kind of bad being like my opinion is for the sake of this movie they should have just gutted most of the political stuff <laughs> Because obviously that, that, that seems to be a huge part of, of Dune, but just mm-hmm. like for the sake of if the studio's demanding it has to be just a little over two hours, yeah. get rid of it. Yeah. I am It's also tricky because it's it's not a series I mean I haven't read the other books in the Dune series, but like it's not a it's it's not an adventure science fiction, yeah. you know. It it's yeah. yeah. I am it's weird. encouraged by Denis Villeneuve, uh because I think that there is a lot in terms of when you look at something like Arrival um, that can translate because uh, I think there's the movie or the book deals a lot more with like language and culture and how does that work and how, do yeah. it, you know, like it it, get, it digs into that a little bit more and it's got to be a lot more, I don't know, methodical and human focused as opposed to um, just being plot events. So, I don't know. Yeah. I think also he understands just with Blade Runner 2049, he understands I don't need to have Ryan Gosling talking about how he's feeling and what's going on in sure. every single scene he's in. Like, he can just be yeah. walking around this this seemingly abandoned uh, casino in Las Vegas, mm-hmm. and, like, you don't need him to constantly be spouting nonsense. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, and I think Villeneuve also has the ability to make a movie that is so atmospherically enveloping that you can just kind of let it wash over you. Mm -hmm. Um, Which at points in 2049, when I I was struggling more with the narrative elements, I was like, that's okay, I can just live in this visual auditory experience. Mm -hmm. Um, Which I think Lynch can do in his other movies. It's interesting that he struggled with with it here. Um, But like Mulholland Drive is very hypnotic. In sure. that way, so. Mo- most of his work, I would say, probably can be described as hypnotic. But I think yeah. this, there's just too much plot <laughs> to, yeah. to I, deal with. I do want to ask the question because I, I believe Lynch was not, he didn't know what Dune was when it was offered to no. him, right? No. So I wonder if it's, he gets presented with this book, he reads it and he goes, I guess I'll just do the book. Book, yeah then like he he, 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 mm. he didn't, because he's not a fan and he's not you know i i feel like especially if you're a fan of, of like a, a book or a series 
and maybe this is more modern thinking, but I feel like just with so many different adaptations of books and stuff, you you, mm-hmm. you just be kind of like in your daydreams, just going, well, how would I adapt this? What stuff would you, would you keep? Right. And, what's, and, and just naturally as a storyteller, I feel like you would do that. And, and just the fact that it seems like it was just kind of thrust upon him and he's like, this is weird. I'll do it. <laughs> which, which I think raises an interesting question. And I say this again as someone who, who does love uh, David Lynch as a, a filmmaker. Um, why do why do people like David Lynch? How how did he happen? <laughs> what? Because like, like he starts off with a razor head, and um, I don't know how much that made. I know it was successful, like both critically and commercially. I think, or at least critically. I don't know about commercially. Um, then he made the Elephant Man, and then he made Dune. Yeah, and I'm like, yeah. hey, how did he how did he get in the position of making Dune? And B, B I, I almost feel like it's it's his agent heard that he said no to return of the Jedi. And he's like, I'm getting you something that is very similar. Could be. Sure. I mean, it, it, maybe it is the same, like it's the same thing we still see today where you've got someone who directs your Josh Trink, if you will, who directs a, your Josh an, Trink, a more your indie web, you know, and then, Colin yeah, and then gets thrown into the thresher of big studio production. Colin um, yeah. Basically the MCU, which is, uh, you know, it's. I guess it's encouraging for any of those directors that hey, even if you made, you know, a good movie followed by a, a bad studio movie, maybe you can recover and become David Lynch. So, because then two years sure. after this, he made uh, Blue Velvet. So, that's true. That's true. It's fascinating. And I, I that's guess right. also Josh Trank coming back at us yeah. with Green Taffeta. <laughs> Are you going to say Capone? Um, <laughs> Green Capone, yeah, uh, which I I, I think also uh, Eraserhead and Elephant Man are more already far more than most filmmakers ever make. Um, just sure. I mean I haven't even seen either, but just knowing like how people care about those movies, I think they're yeah maybe more significant. But well, I, I would say I, I think it also helps that those are very clearly like art house weird like yeah quote-unquote weird movies like it's very much like an auteur's vision as opposed to something like dune where you hear about it and you're like sci-fi space opera it's based on a book series i feel like that sounds a lot more conventional <laughs> yeah yeah for sure well an elephant man as i recall is more of like that was an oscar movie mm-hmm. as well that's okay. like a, a biopic you know um I'm sure there were auteur elements within within it, but that was probably a, one of his more accessible movies or closer right. to it. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, I don't know. I mean, he was also making movies in the you know 70s and early 80s where like that kind of stuff maybe just flew a little more yeah. easily. Yeah, it's fascinating. This this feels like one of the byproducts of star wars where just the, the studios are just like we got to do something big sci-fi what do we what do we got what do we got yeah. and of course we get good yeah. stuff like alien and blade runner you know it's it's a bit split in terms of if people love it or hate it or whatnot but but it yeah. is like very memorable and, and it's um been an important part of of sci- science fiction movies um yeah but like Aliens, the only one that was successful. I feel like a lot of these other mm-hmm. sci-fi movies that came afterwards are just like, oh, this isn't Star Wars. I'm not giving that my money. Yeah. Battle Beyond the Stars, etc. Oh yeah, <laughs> yeah. Um, 
Yeah, it's a weird movie. I don't know. Yeah, it's, 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 it's a very, very strange. It's amazing how strange I found this movie. And at the same time, I was super bored. <laughs> right. Because it, it, it's not enough of a, what a weird experience. I'm just going to go along for this sensory ride. Yeah. Yeah. Because it is so plot heavy. And it manages to both under-explain itself, or both over-explain itself, and you never know what's going on. Yes. Yeah. It feels like it's constantly explaining all of the wrong aspects. Like it's answering questions yeah. that I already like. I didn't, those weren't even questions. I, I was good. <laughs> and it feels like it's it's trying right. to elaborate on that. Whereas this these this other set of questions that are just slowly piling up as I'm watching the movie. <laughs> maybe not so slowly. Maybe it's a bit quicker yeah. than that. Um, I'm just like, are you gonna gonna get to these guys? <laughs> and then they just yeah. never do. <laughs> Toto did the score. They did. And I saw that and I did not know that. And I was just like, I, I actually think it's pretty cool. <laughs> like It's just like a lot of yeah, anyway. rock riffs. Um, yeah. I, I, I was kind of worried when I saw that because I was figuring like, are they going to have like songs with vocals just like in the middle of scenes? Like how, how jarring is this going to feel? And ultimately yeah, I, it's I gonna felt like, like Tarzan did a, pretty solid job of serving the movie's weird tone by having kind of more traditional orchestral pieces along with the guitar riffs. I actually thought that kind of helped. Shihalud cries out in the night. (laughs) (laughs) No, Alex, I think you make a really good point. I think like you look at a really stupid movie like Disney's Tarzan. I don't know, just to pull something (laughs) off the top of my head. How dare you, sir? (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> i'm kidding i like her um do we have anything more to say about dune not not really i'm giving it a d for dune that's funny because Ooh. i'm also giving it a d for dune and also well hey let's for david oh and for duncan idaho <laughs> <laughs> Let's make it three. Yeah, the names in this movie are so funny because you have, like, Thufir Hawat, Gurney Halleck, Baron Harkonnen, and then Duncan Idaho, who should be wearing spurs. Sure. And then our hero, Paul. <laughs> oh, Paul. That that also reminded me a lot of, of the Star Wars prequels because yeah. it almost felt like an exaggeration of, of the original trilogy where, like, you have more conventional names like Han, Luke, and Leia. Mm. Those are fairly, like... Mm-hmm. I get it, <laughs> and it's like the the weirdest name you get in the movie is like Obi Wan Kenobi, yeah. but then they're just calling him Ben for most of it, so it's not. Yeah, I don't know this this one felt like because <laughs> like I, I'm just thinking like we have characters like Dexter Jester, like a name like that. <laughs> you would really not, could though. It, it would feel so at yeah. home in this movie. <laughs> Dexter Jester, the character, would feel at home in Dune. <laughs> <laughs> D for Dexter Jester. Um, so Tyler, you had a a, a piece yeah. that you wanted to share. Um, so it is our two hundredth episode. I wanted to bring a little little fun thing to the table. Um, so I've I've gone back through and analyzed our all the franchise movies we've ta- talked about up to this point. Um, not not your bone tomahawks and such. I have not included those. Um, uh, not not fan of the opera. 
Well, I mean, uh, let's let's just agree. Bone Tomahawk is the best movie we've reviewed. Correct. <laughs> um, I went back through and I have uh, ran some numbers on all the composers uh, for the movies we've discussed. Um, and so I just wanted to, to take a look at those because I feel like we, we bring them up relatively frequently. Um, but it's something that I think it would be fun to keep more track of moving forward. Um, and, and just kind of, uh, highlight. And so basically I determined Randy Newman. Good job. <laughs> yeah, no. Um, so there are, we, we've talked about uh, approximately 200 movies. I don't think the numbers quite add up. Um, but, uh, of those movies, how many do we have? We have, uh, 67 different composers. Okay. Wow. Um, however, uh, 11 composers are responsible for 98 of those movies. Wow. And I wanted to see, uh, as, as the first bit part of this, how many of them can you, can y'all, can y'all guess? Who, who, throw some names out there. John Williams. So of, of these old Zimmer. Daniel you gotta, you gotta go, go slow so I can, I can give some more info. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> All right. So John, John Williams. John Williams. Yes. Uh, Hans please Zimmer. present answers in the form of a question. Um, <laughs> John Williams has done eighteen, yep. and all the all them Star Wars movies and, and such. You know, Harry Potter, Indiana Jones. He's got many. Um, Hans Zimmer has done ten. Um, I don't remember uh, how I counted. I think I gave Pirates of the Caribbean: Curse of the Black Pearl to uh, Klaus Bedelt. Because yeah. I, he, it was kind he, of a, but but he he is the the named composer on that film. Yes, Hans um, Zimmer so there, helped, but he is there the, were, the official composer. There were a couple of cases like that. Uh, Danny Elfman, who is another one of them, he did um, eight or nine films, depending on how you take Age of Ultron. Because again, he did that with uh, um, Tyler Bates, Brian Tyler, actually Brian Tyler, the other <laughs> Tyler composer oh, who yeah. is not me. Brian um, Tyler's got to be on the list too because he's done like four. Or five. Brian Tyler is also there. He's done a bunch of the Fast and Furious movies. Oh, okay. Um, well, there, yeah. there you go. Uh, wh- uh, what does Michael Giacchino? Yes, uh, accurate. Uh, um, David Arnold. Yes, for and James or Bond. John Barry. Yep, John Barry is number two with eleven because he did eleven James Bond films. Yep. Uh, Silvestri. Uh. Sylvester's done like six or seven, right? Yes. Sorry. I, I, I was scrolling over. He's done nine. He's done several movies in the MCU, all the Back to the Future movies, and then uh, two Alien Predator movies. I don't know which ones. I think huh. maybe the AVP movies. Sylvester? Or something. No, I don't remember which ones. He's, it's somewhere in there. Oh, he did the Predator movies. Yeah, the first two. Was it, the, yes, that's right, that's right. Because I was just, um, there's no way Alan <laughs> Silvestri did the score for Alien vs. Predator. You'd be surprised. We'll talk about it. Um, oh, my God. All right, so we're missing, I believe, three. And they're all three on the lower end. So there's, uh, there's Bill one, Conti? Uh, yes, for Rocky. I, I'm, I'm semi-cheating. I have the score sheet, so I'm looking That's through fine. the movies. But you're, you're, you're still uh, got to know. Um, Randy who, Newman? Who did Randy the Transformers movies? is not... Where is Randy Newman? Um, yeah, Steve Jablonski? Steve Jablonski, Jablons- yeah. yes, is Transformers. Randy Newman is in the next tier, because he only did the four Toy Story movies. And this cuts off okay, at five. Okay. Um, yeah, I was going to say, if we're going underneath that, then John Ott... There's, there's one big one... Uh, 
that uh that one of my favorite composers uh you may know him for his work on uh the Twilight Saga, the one, one of the movies, I forget which one. I think probably Breaking Dawn. Um but he's also done that's not why he's on this list. That's not what gave him the seven movies that he had done. Ramin Jawadi? Not Ramin Jawadi, who has done I think only Blade Trinity. Karen Carpenter. Ramin Jawadi has also done the first Iron Man, I think. Yes. So. Oh wow. So he has two. Um Dick. you're you're missing it's it's a big hole. You're gonna you're gonna be hitting yourself think of your favorite film scores. The Frenchman who oh. composed I Lost My Body. Howard Shore. Yes. Oh for, right. for all the Lord of the Rings and Hobbit movies. So. Yeah. Duh. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um Yeah. <laughs> from from there things are more like spread out. It's almost like a, a perfect curve because then the, there are um how how do I word this? There are like ten or fifteen composers who have done three or four movies, and that consists of about forty five of our movies, and then um there are a bunch of composers who have done two, which is 30, uh, covers 30 movies. And then there are a bunch of one-off composers who cover the last 28 movies. So it's a, it's a wow. fun mix there. Um, the other thing... How many, individ- how many notes? How many individual notes across all the movies? Uh, at least a few. <laughs> yeah, I was going to say, it's got to be at least like 40. Probably. <laughs> um, one for every five movies. It's great. Wow. Uh, <laughs> The the other thing that I've done with this this data is I've compiled what I call the uh, composer integrity score, um, <laughs> and so what it is is for each to franchise how good a person they are. Um, I've broken down the uh, the number. I forget, let me remember how I got this average. So it's it's the number of movies divided by the number of composers. Um, so the higher the score, the the higher your composer integrity is because that means that you have only had you know, ideally one composer doing all your music. Okay. Um, okay, I follow. So it's, yes. it's, it's basically the consistency of, of the, yes. the, the composer. Okay. Yes. Um, now, so this is this is fun because... I mean, Star Wars wins, right? Uh, well, it's no, close. Randy, I mean, Toy Story wins because... Or, or if we're doing average, then... You're getting close. Um, Star Star Wars is number four. Star Wars has a 3.67 because uh, you do have John Powell for Solo and Michael Giacchino for Rogue Rogue One. One. Yeah. Um, Mixed in there. I don't think I included... No, because we haven't reviewed the Clone Wars. So so they had three across the board. Um, And John Williams was, I think, still involved in both of those as well. Obviously, they draw heavily on his music. Um, then uh, you you mentioned Randy Newman. He is he is one of there's a tie for second with uh, Toy Story has a, a perfect four, and then there's another franchise uh, that has a perfect four. Uh, Silvestri for Back to the Future. No, there's only three of those. You hack. Oh, <laughs> whoops. <laughs> I mean, I, is it in, in, Indiana Jones? Yes. Oh, and then Lord of the Ring. Yeah. And Rings then Lord Wars. of the Rings is the the top of the list now. Only because uh, we throw in the Hobbit. That doesn't count. <laughs> <laughs> there are a couple of trilogies at the bottom, um, which I'll go ahead and give you our Blade and Pitch Perfect. They each had a different composer for each movie. Um, 
and so the, those are kind of like okay well you only you only had three movies to work with you it was you just change it up each time whatever each movie had however a director yes well but those are also the two uh trilogies that i would say are the most tonally consistent of all the movies we've reviewed and yeah. stylistically steady yeah, among the I would, three films. I would agree. Um, and they both get better as they go along. So, <laughs> I'm not a fan of this. So, uh, we're putting an asterisk on them for being the bottom two. However, there are uh, three franchises uh, that have more than five movies and all have um, a 1.2 or less. And I feel... That there, it's just, it makes sense that these are our three franchises at the bottom of the poll here. I mean, it's like the Alien take, and Predator, like the right? Alien versus Predator franchise, has twelve movies and eleven composers. Yeah, the one being the Alan Silvestri for pre- the first two Predator movies. Right. Um, would you would you care to figure out what the next two on the on the list there are? Batman. You're not not traditional Batman. Okay. MCU. No. MCU is middling. Uh, 1.64, which is good for 19. Where's the X Men out of 30? Uh, the X Men. Also, The Matrix is, is also tied for second place or right. third, whatever. I have both no, the Matrix on here and and the Matrix combined with Jupiter ascending on here. So, oh, okay, never mind. Um, Failure. Well, they're they're you're right though. They're both they're both there. Um, then uh, the X Men are are lower on the list. Twenty three, well, one point three three. Um, but we're 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 still we're not quite hitting that bottom of the barrel. Um, two franchises that I just I feel perfectly encapsulate why why you should have better composers. <laughs> Because clearly they're, it's their fault that the franchise has turned out this way. <laughs> Is it Twilight? It's not Twilight, actually. Which Twilight has, like... Let me remember who else did a Twilight movie. Because Howard Shore did one. Um, oh, let me see. Alexandre Duplass <laughs> did one. Um, and then Carter Burwell did three. Oh. The other three. Mm. And he uh, he also did the Incredible Hulk and other things. I don't know. Um, you're still you're still not getting these two franchises. I think you'll understand why I'm very excited about the fact that it's these three franchises when you when we establish what these three franchises. Is, is one are. of them X Men? Like no. Uh. They're franchises that I just hate. James Bond? <laughs> no. The other two franchises are the DCEU and the Terminator yeah. franchise. Uh... <laughs> oh, that's interesting. Because I, I was thinking of ones that didn't repeat themselves like at all. But because um... no, there's not there's not really any aside from those two trilogies that just completely don't. Okay. Um, but yes, AVP, the DCEU, and the Terminator franchise are the ones that <laughs> score worst on this ranking. Um, which is fitting because they're all bad franchises. <laughs> oh my! I don't like them. <laughs> what a hot take. <laughs> Dune, do 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 Dune. Correct. Interesting. I guess, Tyler. I guess you're right. Math is fun. 
It that, is. Isn't well, it? I mean, that was that was far more interesting than, than my my uh, my execution of what's everyone's rankings of the James Bond movies. <laughs> <laughs> Or me asking Alex what his favorite dessert is. Oh my god! I should I should go ahead and, and throw it because I'm sure I'm sure the the DC fans will come after me. I was including Joker in the DCU. If uh, if you have the DCU without Joker, then uh, it it moves up a rung to be tied with Terminator instead of below Terminator. So. <laughs> oh my! That Joker god. score is very good. That's okay. <laughs> so I didn't do a recommendation last week because we got so caught up talking about Star Wars. So now yeah, you're going to do 200 recommendations. I'm going to recommend right? 200 movies in, in alphabetical order, starting with 310 to Yuma. <laughs> um, uh, no, uh, I'll do, I will do two quick ones. If you want to... A science fiction movie that is has a lot on its mind, but is not so uh, frustratingly confusing. I would recommend Ex Machina. Mm. I think that's a nice little four-person play, essentially, as a movie uh, written and directed by Alex Garland. It was his first directorial. It was the first time directing after writing several uh, impressive movies, like Twenty Eight Days Later, and. Uh, I talked last week about Star Wars actors not being used well. That movie uses uh, Donald Gleason and Oscar Isaac extremely well. Oscar mm-hmm. Isaac's great in that movie. I completely and Oscar fought... Isaac will be... I was going to say, I completely mm-hmm. forgot Donald Gleason was in that. Yeah. Yeah, he's, he's our, our lead. And Oscar Isaac's going to be Duke Leto Atreides in Villeneuve's Dune. I'm extremely excited about that. Mm-hmm. And uh, it's just a really good movie. It looks fantastic. The music's really good. Alicia Vikander is wonderful. And uh, it's just like a neat... It, it it it's nice to see like smart small scale science fiction executed so well um and it has a lot in its mind and it's very sort of dreamy and you can kind of get lost in it um mother recommendation is kind of qualified it's another movie that uses a star wars actor better than star wars did uh i'm going to recommend i'm going to recommend like crazy this is a 2011 movie from drake doremus it's on amazon prime right now it is it's a love story about an English college student who falls in love with an American college student. Like, they fall in love, but then she um, violates the terms of her visa and isn't allowed to return to the U.S. And so it's about them navigating their relationship. It stars Anton Yelchin and uh, Felicity Jones. Hmm. It was sort of Felicity Jones' breakout performance uh, It put her on the map. And she's fantastic in it. She's so, so good and... I'm a big Rogue One fan. I think it's a really fun movie, but I am not immune to the fact that she is, or her character, quote unquote, arc is one of the weaker elements of that movie. Her sort of light switch, like, no, I'm a, I'm, I'm a hero now. Hope is good, is is kind of hard to, to grok in that one. But uh, I think that when you give her good material, she's such a great actor and she's fantastic in this movie. And Anton Yelchin's really good. Um Heads up, it is essentially a mumblecore movie, so get out those subtitles, because I had to. Yeah. Um, and uh, it's not long, but it is kind of... It, I think the movie is fine. It's not necessarily a happy love story, but it is a well-told love story. 
and again, just those those performances, especially Jones, are just really exceptional. So after two big movies, here are two smaller movies that you could uh, could watch and enjoy. I would say Ex Machina is the better overall of the two, but Like Crazy is quite solid, and I love Felicity Jones. Can I complain real quick about and... the closed captioning on HBO Max? Because oh, it's please do they, they don't do subtitles; they just do closed captioning, and it's just like very big, hmm. and it looks like when you have closed captioning on. Like a news channel. That's weird that they don't have offer that. Netflix has like tons of options yeah. for alternative. And I don't know if I think I was watching on the PS4 yeah. app. I don't know if it was different for either y'all, yeah. but uh, yeah, I, mean, I don't have I, HBO Max. I, I have an Xbox One, and it, it did have that as well. Although based on, I didn't have problems when it launched when I was using the app, but apparently it was practically broken at launch. So maybe we should be happy with what we have. Sure. That's just such a weird thing to not include. There's a lot of weird things that well, HBO Max has neglected to include. I mean, it's not they—they they do technically <laughs> have it. It's just like it's—it's it's either sure, sure. You know, you—you you, you don't have them, or you have them covering up a quarter of the screen. It's very weird. I gotcha. I gotcha. Ugh. Weird. I'm—I'm uh, I'm gonna have—I'm gonna have a weird off-the-wall recommendation. It's gonna be for a book. Ooh. That. Ooh. That, Friend of the the, the podcast, is it called Dune? Cecilia got me to to read. It's called Rebels on the Backlot. It's about a mm-hmm. bunch of kind of the the maverick directors of of the mid and late nineteen nineties, like your your Tarantinos oh, wow. and your Soderberghs and your your David Finchers and Spike Jones and David O. Russell and and Paul Thomas Anderson. I think that's literally everyone that the book covers, <laughs> um, and just a lot of their. Movies I like the majority that, uh, of them that they made during that time and it's it it's inspired me because hbo max has a lot of the movies that are in this uh-huh. um to go back and watch them like um within the past couple of weeks i've watched uh three kings i've watched fight club i've watched being john malkovich um so good book by uh sharon waxman that sounds really I have no idea how old cool. this is it's probably like 15 years old <laughs> <laughs> that sounds really cool though you said rebels on the back yes. lot neat awesome also, just talking to books, read Dune. Like, it's a really good book. Well, I, I, I'm actually kind of curious based on all all my, my facetious comments where I was like, oh, that's interesting. <laughs> um, yeah. I, no, like, I th- this may turn out to be one of those things that it just works better as a book. Yeah. yeah. Well, I, I, think... I, I did want to ask, is, is the series known for being good? Like, does it stick the landing at the end? Like, what's, what's the fan perception? It's kind of interesting because, I mean, people generally say, yeah. read the first book um, for sure, because the first book is, is great. It's, it works on its yeah, own. Monument. It, okay. Like it, it is, it is complete. Self-contained. Um, and that's all I did. Uh, and it, like, it's, it's clearly set up to allow for more stories, but the actual like conflict is, is done. Um, and then, People kind of go like I've tried to look into this because I was curious because I was in the middle of reading Dune. I was like, "Oh, this is great! Like, how do, do people think I should continue?" Um, and the general consensus seems to be there isn't one. <laughs> like, people people <laughs> will say, "Oh, just read the next one." Oh, just read the next. Like, just keep reading until you get bored and keep you know don't don't yeah. read any of them. I don't know. Like, there's there's a lot of okay up in the air. I, it doesn't Cause, seem. Cause I'm, I'm sure I have not like into box it. sets or whatever of, yeah. of all of them, and I think yeah. oh, I'm sure. there's six. After in total. a while, his uh... that sounds right. Uh, maybe yep. I know. After a while, his his son took over. Yeah. The the six um, I think are the like the ones written by him that are considered oh, okay. the okay. canon, I guess. But 
Yeah. No, I can definitely, as just as a work of science fiction literature, it's a really impressive mm-hmm. uh, book. Um, I recommend it. Tyler, you watched anything cool recently? I didn't even play in Sekiro. I've, I recommend Sekiro again. Um, <laughs> it's just a good game. <laughs> Now, do I should I keep replaying Ratchet and Clank, or should I give it? Or should I try out Sekiro? Because I would like to play it. Actually, it does sound pretty cool. What, what we're not we're not going to invest twenty five to thirty hours of playing The Last of Us Part Two to get in on that controversy. Yeah, we're going to review The Last I mean, of I'm Us definitely... Part Two because we are shallow and uh, have nothing else. To... <laughs> we just want to ride that wave, you know. I mean, I'm definitely going to play yeah. it because I love that first game. That is a game but... I would have. I actually did play, uh, <laughs> this could be my weird recommendation. I went back because I had never done the uh, DLC for The Last of Us um, left behind. Oh, had. man. Um, and I, I went ahead That's and knocked great. that out. Just, I mean, it's a short little thing. It's like three or four hours maybe. Yeah. Um, and that was with me kind of like just exploring and enjoying it. And uh, that was just a cool, I was just like, oh, right. This is why this game was so good. <laughs> like it was just a yeah. good little refresher that, that, on the world. That's like... That's what DLC should be, yep. I think. Yep. I mean, unless except for like your Witcher three, so they're like, hey, here's like another essentially like a mini yep. video, like another big story. That's like the perfect length for a small mission. Yep. <laughs> Arkham Knight. Sure. Ooh. <laughs> That's like such <laughs> Oh you want a full review of, of something that I don't like? <laughs> I, mean, I Some of it was kind of okay. Yeah, I I will definitely play The Last of Us 2 at some point, and I'll be sure to give you all my review in a couple of years when that happens. (laughs) Because... It's just, it... They're so expensive. If I'm going to shell out 60 bucks for a game right now, it will be the Final Fantasy VII remake. Yeah, they're so expensive, and there's so many other games that I, like, need to play more of that I have already, and I'm like, I can't. I can't go for that right now, so... PS Plus just dropped their, like, free titles, or they just announced their free titles for July, and I totally... One of them's called Erica, and that sounds really cool. I totally want to play that. So, like, I got stuff to play. You can find us online. Don't Starve, you know. Oh, is Don't Starve one of them? You've interrupted my... No, Don't Starve... But Don't Starve, I think, is, like, four or five bucks on PlayStation. Don't Starve is a good game. Anyway, you can find us online at herefromthesequels.blogspot.com. You can find us on Twitter at HCTSequels. You can find us on Spotify and SoundCloud and iTunes... Uh, just a plethora of places. And uh, there's another one. I don't know. <laughs> it's on our SoundCloud. <laughs> I really want a, a well, smash well, cut of every time you've tried <laughs> to do that. There's just too many now. There's too, it's, we're everywhere. We're, we're everywhere. Our, our podcast <laughs> we, jihad we is expanding across the galaxy. Um, well, happy 200, guys. Yeah. Wow. All these episodes. Yeah, all them episodes. I, I wonder what it'll be like after 200 more. I wonder what it'll be like. <laughs> Hi, I'm Head in a Jar Britain. <laughs> and I'm David Lynch. Replace Tyler <laughs> on this podcast. I'm 300 years old. Yeah, uh, <laughs> it turns out David Lynch decided to take over Tyler's part on the podcast when when the Denny Villeneuve Dune came out because he just had to he had to speak his mind. <laughs> and that's Alex's son, the supervillain, the fiction breaker. I was really hoping you were going to say, and that's Alex's son, Alex. <laughs> <laughs> 
Well, wh- why did you get that name? Well, when I was born, my dad looked in a mirror, and I think he just kind of went with, with went with that. <laughs> oh boy. Um. So so two hundred episodes. Well, do we want to announce what we're doing next? What's, yeah, what's yeah, Alex. Uh, what what is the next phase of our master plan? See, see, it's 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 all about crashing this podcast, uh, you know, with no survivors. 